As we open this week's show, please join Bishop Rhodes and host Kyle Hyman as they pray the Regina Chaley, or the Queen of Heaven, a hymn to the Blessed Mother that's usually prayed during this special Easter season. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen of Heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. The Son whom you merited to bear. Alleluia. Has risen as he said. Alleluia. Pray for us to God. Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this week's episode, Bishop offers a special preview of Saturday's priestly ordination mass, something he encourages everyone to attend at least once. And there is a lot in the Mass to unpack, from the readings chosen by the transitional deacons and soon-to-be priests, to the powerful litany of saints, to the ancient tradition of the laying on of hands and the prayer of ordination. Afterwards, it's on to the upcoming Feast of the Ascension, and then listener-submitted questions on topics like how the movies portray heaven and hell, whether or not Mary understood her sinless nature, and why bishops wear that small skull cap. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer on a future episode, download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions. Or go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop and submit it there. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, and it is getting crunch time. Thanks for joining us right before our ordination mass this weekend. Yes, it's a great time. On June 1st, I'll be ordaining three deacons to the priesthood, Jose Arroyo, Dianizer, and Spencer St. Louis. Yeah, priesthood ordination is always one of the, the highlights of the year for me, and I guess for the diocese as well, and for our, all of our priests. And it's good. Three new priests. We're doing pretty well. Uh-huh. And after the ordination, soon to be Father Arroyo and Father Nizer will be in our diocese practicing, and then Father St. Louis will go back to Rome. Well, he'll serve... Uh, He'll serve in a parish for the summer and then go back for okay. one more year okay. to complete his license in sacred theology, and uh, then he'll come back for his permanent assignment. Very good. So, people might remember we did a little wager for the Cupertino Classic, and so I'm going to be doing some recording at the event, talking to our seminarians, soon-to-be priests, and maybe see if I can get some of their families and stuff like that. So we'll have a, a whole episode kind of chronicling the ordination mass and the journey that these men have gone through, which I'm really excited about. But for now, I thought maybe we could go over what that ordination mass looks like. And obviously it's a mass, so there's a lot of the same components as a regular mass, but also some very unique components because it is an ordina yeah. ordination. I would imagine that a good number of our Catholic faithful have attended priestly ordinations. However, I, I think there's probably a good number who never have. And right. I, I encourage any of the listeners, if you've never been to a priesthood ordination mass, you're always welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, come to the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception on Saturday, June 1st, 11 a.m. It's always just a, a great uplifting liturgy. And um, so I'd be happy to talk about the rite of ordination. Um, 
which takes place after the liturgy of the word before the liturgy of the eucharist so so right in the in the middle of the mass we have the rite of ordination and it begins with the election of the candidates a deacon will call upon those to be ordained priests to come forward and this is right after the gospel at that point Father Andrew Buzinski, who is our director of vocations, will say out loud to me that the church asks me to ordain these men to the responsibility of the priesthood. And, and I'll ask Father Andrew, do you know them to be worthy? Mm. Um, and then he will reply, after inquiry among the Christian people, and upon the recommendation of those responsible, I testify that they have been found worthy. Hmm. Obviously, these men have been through many years of formation, many evaluations to ensure that they are worthy for ordination. So we have that public testimony by the vocation director that they are ready, that they are worthy. And at that point, I respond relying on the help of the Lord God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We choose these, our brothers, for the order of the priesthood. And the whole congregation replies, thanks be to God. Hmm. And they also break out in applause, which is a sign of their assent, their agreement with the choice, the election of these men to the priesthood. At that point, then, I deliver the homily. That's always uh, a homily I enjoy preparing a lot of thought and prayer goes into preparation of a homily for ordination. I allow the, the men to choose the readings. There's a selection that they can choose from that have to do with the priesthood. And this year, the men chose, and it's a pretty common reading at ordinations, the call of the prophet Jeremiah. If you recall, it's when uh, Jeremiah kind of objects to God calling him to be a prophet, saying that he's he's only a youth. He's and uh, and the Lord says basically in response, don't say that you're a youth where I send you, you will go, etc. Hmm. And he, basically the Lord tells him not to be afraid. And God extends his hand over him and says, I will put my words in your mouth. So it's a very beautiful reading. I haven't prepared the homily yet, although I have some thoughts. Uh -huh. And then this year they chose as the responsorial psalm, Psalm 23, which is perfect. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I shall want. Of course, these men are being ordained to be shepherds, but Christ is the great good shepherd. And, yeah. and they are to reflect the love of, of, the, of Christ, the good shepherd, and the care for the flock. Our three deacons chose as the, the second reading, which uh, will be proclaimed in Spanish at the ordination, hmm. a passage from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. I don't recall if this, if I've preached on this reading at an ordination before. So I like that. It gives me something new to ponder. Interesting. Uh, part of that reading, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is... Um, where St. Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. So I'll, obviously in my homily, I'll probably talk about that humility that's required of a priest, that we're, it's not about us, it's about Christ. 
and we are his servants and servants of his word. And then for the gospel, I guess you could say they must, the, the men must have had the good shepherd in mind because it's from John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, gives his life for the sheep. Our Lord says that he knows his sheep and they know him. And as the Father knows him, and he knows the Father, and he says, I give my life for the sheep. So obviously, that's um, going to be a main focus of, of my homily. And we give thanks to God that we have, uh, he sent, that he sent to us, to our diocese, these young shepherds who will, um, as priests, serve the Lord's flock and give their lives, really, for those whom they are called to serve. So the readings are excellent. And then what will happen after the homily will be an, uh, what we call the promise of the elect. The promise of the elect are, is really, it's a series of questions that I ask the three candidates. It's a declaration before the people of their intention to undertake the priestly office. There are five questions that are really get to the very heart of, of what their priestly mission is all about. One of the questions has to do with exercising the ministry of the word worthily and wisely. I ask them if they're resolved to do that, to preach the gospel, to teach the Catholic faith. And to each question, they respond, I do. Hmm. Another one of the questions has to do with the the sanctifying mission of the priests, where I ask them if they're resolved to celebrate faithfully and reverently the Eucharist and the sacraments for the glory of God, for the sanctification of the Christian people. Then I ask, um, and this is an interesting question, um, do you resolve to implore with us God's mercy upon the people entrusted to your care by observing the command to pray without ceasing? Hmm. I think that's um, you know highlighting the the priest as a mediator. You know, one of the tasks of the priest that people don't necessarily see is our responsibility to pray for our people. So I think that's um, an important promise or declaration that they make in answering that question. And then probably the most profound question of all is the last question. And I will ask them, do you resolve to be united more closely every day to Christ the high priest who offered himself for us to the Father as a pure sacrifice and with him to consecrate yourselves to God for the salvation of all? So it's really important. I mean, they're being configured to Christ the high priest who was also the victim. He was also the sacrifice. So they're configured to Christ in their souls at ordination, but then they have to live that configuration. In other words, every day, especially through their prayer, to be united to Christ. And all of this uh, is a consecration to God of their lives, but also it's for it's not for themselves it's for the church it's for the people right. the salvation of god's people would that be considered their vows 
Um, as promises? No, I mean, we don't speak of those as, as vows. Okay. Um, these five questions are basically, I would say, promises okay. that they have the resolve to do these things. Sure. But the when we get, strictly speaking, to the concrete, it's after those five questions that they kneel before the bishop and make a solemn promise. And that promise is obedience. That is a really important part. The, the, the five questions, they're standing. But then they come to the bishop and they kneel before me and they place their hands in my hands. And I ask them that, uh, that question, do you promise respect and obedience to me and my successors? And they each do this individually. The other questions they do as a group, they answer okay. as a group. But with the promise of obedience, it's individually. And after they say, I do, then I conclude with these words, may God who has begun the good work in you bring it to fulfillment. We think of the obedience of Jesus to the will of the Father. Priests are called to be obedient uh, to their bishop. This is all very, very important for the unity of the church. It's an act of humility. It includes things like going where they are sent. If there's a particular, uh, you know, according to the particular needs of the church in our diocese, I have to assign priests or transfer priests. They are called to be obedient to that. It's not about where they feel, oh, I'm really, you know, want to stay here and all right. that. No. They should have a, a spirit of openness to go where they are sent. It's not about their desires. Mm -hmm. It's about the needs of the church. And the bishop discerns those needs. Of course, I, I listen to, you know, and, and know the priests and their situations and prayerfully discern and listen to their opinion. But in the end, they're called to, to be obedient. So that's really the, the beginning part of the right of ordination mm -hmm. after the promise of obedience we have what's called the litany of supplication this is a very powerful part in which the whole congregation prays for the three who are going to be ordained priests and we pray the litany of supplication which is the litany of saints we call upon the saints to intercede for them. If it's the Easter season, we remain standing. That's the tradition for the Litany of Saints. If it is outside the Easter season, we kneel for the Litany of Saints. But while everyone is kneeling, including me, the men to be ordained are lying prostrate on the floor, mm -hmm. a gesture of profound, profound humility. After we invoke the intercession of the saints, there are a series of petitions where we ask the Lord to deliver us from all evil, from every sin, etc. We ask the Lord to govern and protect the church and the Pope and to bless these chosen men and to sanctify them and to consecrate them. So it's a very beautiful litany. Uh, it's chanted and after the litany is over, I say a closing prayer and everyone stands. 
So right at that moment when we've, we've had this long prayer, it's at that moment then that one by one, the men come to, to the bishop and kneel before me and the ordination takes place through the laying on of hands. And that's ancient. It goes back to the t- uh, really the scriptures and to the very early church. This was the sign by which the sacrament was conferred. So I place my hands on each candidate's head in silence. And after that, all the priests who are present come forward and lay hands on each of the elect. That's an essential part of the rite of ordination. But the sacrament is not yet conferred until, in addition to laying on of hands, the bishop prays what's called the prayer of ordination, sometimes called the prayer of consecration. It's a a really beautiful prayer that goes back to the early centuries of the church. When that prayer is completed, the men are priests. So it's the laying on of hands and the prayer of ordination that makes one a priest. Um, I could read to all our listeners the prayer of ordination, but it'll take up a a lot of time here, (laughs) Kyle. Um, There's one part of the prayer, though, that is what we call the essential form. In other words, it's the words that are required for the ordination to be valid. And I will uh, recite those words for our listeners. The words of the prayer, the one part of the prayer where the bishop says, Grant, we pray, Almighty Father, to these your servants the dignity of the priesthood. Renew deep within them the spirit of holiness. May they henceforth possess this office which comes from you, O God, and is next in rank to the office of bishop. And by the example of their manner of life, may they instill right conduct." As I said, that's the, the part of the prayer that's required for the validity of the act. The whole prayer is, is beautiful. That's the essential form. That's that, that part of the prayer. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we take a break? And whenever we come back, there's a few more components to the ordination mass that we can talk about. And maybe if we have some time, we can talk about the ascension as well, which will be on Sunday. That's coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we've been talking about the ordination mass or the rite of ordination, which is uh, coming up right here on Saturday. We will be broadcasting the ordination on Redeemer Radio. You can listen via FM or by streaming online at RedeemerRadio.com or in the Redeemer Radio app. Three of our seminarians that are currently deacons will be ordained to the priesthood. And you've mentioned the prayer of consecration which is kind of the, the, the meat of it, it seems like. That, that's that's the, the most important part. Well, the laying on of hands okay. and the prayer of consecration. Okay. It's the matter and form of the sacrament. Gotcha. And so at this point in the Mass, they are now priests? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And then what happens? Then they are vested in the 
vestments of a priest, the stole and the chasuble. Now they've worn the stole over their left shoulder as deacons, but now as priests, it's it's put over both shoulders. Mm-hmm. And the chasuble, the chasuble is the vestment the priests wear when they celebrate mass. So each of the uh, of the men chose who, a priest that they that they wanted to vest them okay. to put the stole and chasuble on them. Often it's a priest that has had a uh, a strong influence on their vocation or uh so they they do that who did you choose for your priest um my pastor monsignor joe keely in in saint mary's in lebanon yeah god rest him he he was uh an older priest at that time but a wonderful pastor and uh yeah i remember him with fondness he died several years ago Mm -hmm. but uh yeah he was just a, a really good shepherd after they are vested, they come back to the bishop, and one by one, they kneel before me, and I anoint their hands, the palms of their hands, with the sacred chrism, the anointing of the hands. When I anoint their hands, and each one is kneeling before me, I say, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, guard and preserve you that you may sanctify the Christian people and offer sacrifice to God. The anointing with the chrism, it's, you know, of course, the sacred chrism is is used at baptism, it's used Mm -hmm. at confirmation, and it's used at holy orders. And notice those are all sacraments that imprint an indelible character. There's something permanent. When one is baptized, one is permanently uh, united to Christ, becomes a child of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. One can only be baptized once. Then when one is confirmed, a person is anointed on their forehead and the sign of the cross with the sacred chrism, sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's permanent. Confirmation can only be be celebrated once. It's a permanent character in the soul. Mm-hmm. Same with priesthood ordination. Only once, a permanent character in the soul and the sacred chrism in the priesthood ordination is on the the palms of the hands okay because it's those hands that will offer the eucharistic sacrifice it's those hands that will bless people and give absolution etc so that's a very powerful part and it's a very ancient part of the rite of priestly ordination after the anointing of hands, uh, of the hands, the next part is the faithful, some of the faithful will bring forward in procession the bread and a chalice with wine for the celebration of Mass. And I will place in the hand of each one of the newly ordained priests as they kneel before me the paten with the host and the chalice with the wine. And I say to them, as I'm presenting them with these vessels, receive the oblation of the holy people to be offered to God. Understand what you do, imitate what you celebrate, and conform your life to the mystery of the Lord's cross. You know, those words, I could do a whole homily on those words because it gets to the very heart of priestly life and ministry that they are to offer the Eucharistic sacrifice. I'm exhorting them to understand what they do and to imitate 
what they celebrate, to imitate the self-giving love of Jesus on the cross, to conform their lives to the mysteries, mystery of the Lord's cross, which means they are to give themselves to the flock entrusted to their care, that the priestly ministry is an office of love in imitation of the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. So after the presentation of the vessels, the bread and the wine, they're standing after that, and I bestow upon them what is called the fraternal kiss, which is actually not a kiss. It's a, 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 an abrazo. It's a, I embrace each of them and say, peace be with you. And they respond, and with your spirit. And then all of the priests who are present come forward to extend this kiss of peace and an embrace. It's basically, a night, it symbolizes the fact that they are becoming part of the presbyterate of this local church of the diocese. They are now brothers in the sacramental priesthood. After all the priests have come forward to give this fraternal embrace, we move to the liturgy of the Eucharist, as we have at every Mass. This will be, it is truly their first Mass, because they're concelebrating the Mass. I mean, the bishop's the, the main celebrant, the principal celebrant, but they are concelebrating. So it is their first Mass as mm -hmm. priests. Usually the next day, they have what we call their first Mass, but it's the first Mass in which they are the the main celebrant. Right. Um, so that's that basically sums up um, the rite of ordination. Again, I hope listeners will take the opportunity to sometime, either this Saturday or in the future, attend an ordination. Yeah. Uh, because it really, I think it's something that every Catholic should experience at least once in their lifetime. So again, that's 11 o'clock Saturday at the Cathedral of Immaculate Conception, Fort Wayne. You can listen on Redeemer Radio as well. But also coming up on Sunday, we have the Ascension. And so I thought we could talk about that a little bit here. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can always call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we will also get to some of the questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we've been talking about the ordination that's happening on Saturday, but then also on Sunday, we will be celebrating as a worldwide church, the Ascension of the Lord. That's June 2nd. Can you give us a, a recap of what we are remembering on this day? You know, the Ascension of our Lord, it's uh, one of the great uh, mysteries of our faith. I, I really don't think we talk enough about it or yeah. uh, celebrate it as much as we should. But it's a, it's, it's a, a, a great mystery of our faith. It's a historical event, but it's also something that transcends history. Hmm. Basically, it is the entry of Christ's humanity into divine glory, and of course, that's symbolized by the cloud and by the heaven. So it's the final elevation of Christ's human nature into the condition of divine glory. We know that the Son of God descended from heaven in the incarnation, 
that the Son of God assumed a, a real body and a rational soul, that as we read in the Gospel of St. John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the eternal Word of God, the Son, took on our human nature, assumed our human nature. We say He came down from heaven. Of course, in the early centuries of the church, there was so much discussion and speculation. There were heresies that arose about who Christ was. And the church, through the early ecumenical councils, taught the truth about what this great event was and who Christ is, that he is a divine person, that he is the Son of God. But there is a unity of two natures in this one divine person. He has a human nature that he assumed at the incarnation and a divine nature. You know, we speak of this in theology as the hypostatic union. And the two natures in the one person are unmixed. And this hypostatic union will never cease. So it's important to see that notion of God descending from heaven. In a sense, we could say he brought heaven to earth mm -hmm. in the incarnation. But what we're going to be celebrating on uh, Sunday, the ascension into heaven, which happened 40 days after the resurrection, is Christ ascending into divine glory with his human nature. So we say in the creed uh, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh-huh. Which really, when we speak of the right hand of the Father, we're talking about the glory and the honor of divinity. He intercedes for us as mediator at the right hand of the Father. That's a very important phrase. I mean, we shouldn't think of it too materially or physically. It's an image of Christ in glory, sharing in the honor of, of the Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. For us, you might say, well, what does this have to do with us? Well, the idea is, you know, Jesus is the head of the church, the body, and we're members of his body. And he has preceded us into the glorious kingdom of the Father so that we can also ascend, that we, so we can live in hope of joining him there. So this is, is truly a profound mystery. You know, the, Kyle, the, the most beautiful and most profound reflection I have ever read on the ascension of our Lord is by Pope Benedict XVI in the second volume of his famous three-volume work, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. And I recommend this to listeners. If you don't have this trilogy by Pope Benedict, I highly recommend it. But in part two of this trilogy, it's about Holy Week. So it's about, it kind of basically begins with the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem all the way through to the resurrection. But then there is an appendix at the end of volume two, huh. which is on the ascension. It's an epilogue where it is Pope Benedict's reflection on Christ's ascension into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. 
And then he talks about how he will come again in glory. It's probably maybe about 20 pages, and it is the most beautiful reflection I've ever read on the meaning of the ascension. So I would recommend that. Okay. Um, there are parts of it that are uh, give insights that, that I'd never thought about before, but very, very beautiful and helps us to appreciate this great mystery of our faith. In Christ's human nature, the humanity in which we all share has entered into the inner life of God. You know, sometimes we tend to think of heaven as like a place beyond the stars, but it really isn't. I mean, heaven isn't a place. It's Heaven is a state of, of life. It's a perfect life with the most holy trinity. And it's our ultimate end to be with Christ, to live in heaven, in this communion of life and love with the Trinity, with the Blessed Virgin Mary, the angels, and all the saints. It's a state of supreme happiness. So when we speak of living in heaven, it means being with Christ, something much greater than some kind of a physical place. It's a, a new state of existence. It's life in communion with God. Sometimes we think, oh, this means that uh, by ascending into heaven, Christ is now absent from the world. And that's false. Uh, he's present in a, a different way. It's a new kind of presence. It's definitive. The 33 years that he lived on earth, it was limited. It was in that area of Galilee and that small part of the world. Well, now his presence is, is not limited. And... It's important to to think about that, not the ascension as Jesus becoming absent from us, but a presence in a fuller way, presence through the Holy Spirit that he sends upon us, his presence in the sacraments, his presence in the church. Yeah, I encourage everyone to meditate on this mystery as we approach the Feast of the Ascension this Sunday. There's also a... Um, one of the Psalms, uh, I think it's interesting to, to think about Psalm 110, where the psalmist begins with a solemn declaration. And this is the Old Testament. And the psalm begins, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The church has always seen this as prophetic about the Son of God's sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory, where he exercises his power and his dominion. So there's this uh, fulfillment of Psalm 110. And then also in that Psalm, it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, letter to the Hebrews does a whole explanation of this in chapter 7, all about Christ's priesthood. So we have this notion, again, a fulfillment of Psalm 110, that Jesus is the true and definitive priest who brings to fulfillment the, uh, the features of Melchizedek's priesthood. So Jesus ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, is interceding for us. It's his priesthood his eternal priesthood. And of course, 
What did Melchizedek, in the time of Abraham, he offered bread and wine? Well, that's what our Lord does. Our Lord, who's seated at the right hand of the Father as mediator, always is also acting in the Eucharist, offering himself in the bread and the wine. So his eternal priesthood in heaven as mediator also touches earth, especially through the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Mm. So this is a really important psalm. It has the word of God, begotten of the Father, the Son incarnate who died and rose. He is seated in heaven. He's the eternal priest who, through the mystery of the bread and wine, bestows upon us uh, life and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation. So there's just so much here. But I, I do like to call to mind that that Psalm 110, okay. because I think it's so connected to what we celebrate uh, when we celebrate the Ascension. Well, I know I'm going to be getting a lot more out of the Ascension this Sunday and also give me something to look at and encourage people to check out Psalm 110 and to help prepare for this Sunday. Uh, also, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have questions about what to believe about the afterlife from movies and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first question is, a lot of movies include people's experiences of heaven, hell, and purgatory. What exactly are we supposed to believe, and when are we not to believe? Well, there's, I would say there's nothing that we're supposed to believe. I mean, these are subjective experiences that people might have, perhaps in their prayer. The fact is, when we talk about these kinds of private revelations or whatever, people's uh, experiences, we have a certain freedom, I mean, to to believe that, okay, this seems probable, but unless the church makes some definitive judgment, mm -hmm. there's certainly no requirement to believe in these things. I think if some, there, there are some times where something may be absolutely wrong, mm -hmm. uh, say if it's contrary to the faith or something, and the right. church might issue a warning about something, and that we're supposed to heed any kind of warning. But yeah, things in movies, you know, I think there's a certain freedom. Yeah, I think that might have happened. Or I guess I would say there's, there's freedom for people to believe or not believe in some of these things based on how convincing the testimony is. Again, unless there's something that's clearly contrary to the doctrine of the faith. Sure. There's all kinds of different genres of movies. There's based on a true story. There's complete fiction. And so we have to be aware of the source and as well as church teaching. Definitely. All right. Diane Hunter from St. Charles Parish in Fort Wayne asked an interesting question. Did Mary understand her own sinlessness and how might she have understood herself in that respect? That's an interesting speculative question, <laughs> uh, Diane. Well, the church has, has no teaching on this point about Mary's knowledge or understanding of her own sinlessness, her immaculate conception. So I think we can only speculate. I mean, you ask how might she have understood herself in that respect? She was very humble. 
Mm-hmm. But I would guess that if she was examining her conscience, she wouldn't come up with any sin. <laughs> um, but I don't think she would have had the pride. She wouldn't have any pride to say like that she wouldn't sin in the future or couldn't sin. Mm. I mean, I think she was too humble to think of herself that way. We know she never sinned, mm-hmm. but, uh, but that's an interesting question. And uh, again, how she understood her own sinlessness is, is kind of mysterious and the church doesn't have any, any teaching on that. I guess at one point when the angel comes to her, she would have known that the angel said that she was full of grace how she would have interpreted that, we don't know, but right. at least she had the same messages that we're able to, to right. read now. But right, interesting. Andrew Wright from Saints Peter and Paul in Huntington asks, if you can have any other role in the diocese besides bishop, what would it be and why? You know what? I love teaching, so I think <laughs> that's what I would do. I would be a teacher, perhaps a college theology Okay. Professor or high school, even. That's probably, if I could have any other role, that's what it would be. And you did teach at the seminary. I did. I had two years where I was a full-time faculty member at Mount St. Mary's, and and they were two very happy years. I loved it. After I became rector, I uh, was no longer able to be a full-time teacher, but I did continue to teach one course each year at the seminary. So, so I kept my hand in it, but I wasn't full-time faculty once I became rector. All right. Next up, I have heard of other dioceses who have policies for parishes and schools to not name buildings, rooms, et cetera, after non-canonized priests or bishops. Is that a policy of our diocese or one that you have considered implementing? Thank you. We have a few places where, parishes or schools have buildings or rooms named after non-canonized priests or bishops. Uh, We do allow it. We don't have any policy against doing so. There are a few dioceses that I know of who've adopted policies prohibiting that, but no, I'm not considering implementing such a policy. Okay. And finally, what is your go-to Starbucks order? (laughs) Well, I try to, well, let's see, go-to... I mean, I like cappuccino, caramel macchiato. This sounds like you're a latte. You're Italian. I don't know what, yeah, I don't know which is my go-to. I but I always get non-fat milk, just so you oh, know. Okay, <laughs> that's good. But I don't know if that helps that much because there's probably a lot of sugar in it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what can you do? <laughs> All right, we have another question that came from the rekindle of the Fire Men's Conference. I remember this because when I saw it, I thought it was very funny how they worded it. Why do you wear that small groovy cap? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is pretty groovy, isn't yeah, it? Very groovy. The, the Zucchetto, Zucchetto, uh-huh. the purple skull cap. I wear it because bishops are supposed to wear it. Uh, no, I think it's, um, you know, yeah, it's it's part of our uh, uniform, so to speak. But it probably goes back to the Jewish times and the custom where Jewish men always wore a skull cap, the yarmulke, when they went into the temple to uh-huh. pray. Even today, if you go to Jerusalem and you're a man and you go to the Western Wall to pray, you have to have one of those skull caps on your head. So I think it's, you know, some of our Christian traditions and customs uh, originated in in the Jewish faith. And I think that's one of them. And you say it is mandatory that bishops wear it? Yeah. Yeah. It's part of our garb uh-huh. We're at mass, you know, uh, when we celebrate the liturgy, et cetera. Yeah. 
But not priests. No, 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 just bishops have to wear that. Apostolic thing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. And we'll be definitely keeping our seminarians in our prayers and uh, encourage people to listen in if they cannot attend. But if you can, come on down to the cathedral for the ordination on Saturday. Uh, Listen to Redeemer Radio if you can't. And can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. Thanks, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be sure to listen next week for another new episode of Truth and Charity and hear Bishop Rhodes comment on current events, including the recent pro-life legislative victories and the Pope's new statement, which gives guidelines on how the church can further protect children and young people. Then Bishop will talk about Pentecost Sunday and answer listener-submitted questions. Submit yours by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. <laughs>